been a good time together already this morning. Um, hearing the word read, praying together, singing praises to our Lord. It's been a good day so far. Now as we get to the portion of our service where uh, we hear from God speak to us through his word, uh, I want you to just remember where we are. We're in the book of James. If you have a copy of that book, I'd encourage you to open it. Turn to the fourth chapter, James chapter 4. And we're going to be covering the first six verses of this chapter. And we're going to continue our look at the idea of what it means to be a friend of God. We're going to consider uh, whether or not we are friends or enemies of God. As you know, the book of James is a collection of tests of authentic faith. And our hope and the, the intent of the Holy Spirit has been to help us examine our own lives, examine uh, the details of our lives and our attitudes, our actions, every part of our lives, to see whether or not it, in fact, confirms the faith that we claim. And this morning, uh, we're going to continue in these few verses that I've just mentioned, um, and we'll probably do some more of the same next week. There is a lot of information here in verses 1 through 6, and James would is asking us here as we begin our study, how do you know if you're a friend of God or an enemy of God? How, how can you tell? And as I mentioned last week, James would say, the way you know if you're an enemy of God is if you're a friend of the world. If, so friend of the world equals enemy of God. So how do you know if you're a friend of the world? And we started to unpack that a little bit last week, and I want to continue doing so this week. But what we learned last week was what it meant to be an enemy of God. Not too many people view themselves as enemies of God, uh, save a few atheists who claim not to believe in him. And if they get close to believing in him, they hate him, um, which is odd to say. But we have a few of those around. We, we know a few of those types of people. But as we learned last week, enemy of, enemies of God are not just these avowed atheists, right? They're uh, unassuming people. They're, they're friends that we have, people we know that don't seem to be antagonistic at all to God or his word for that matter. They just are neutral. They're uninterested, right? In case we resist the idea of the possibility of these regular people in our lives uh, being enemies of God and hating God, the author of this book, James, and Jesus Christ himself said there's only two categories of people in this world, those who are friends of God and those who are enemies of God. Those are the only two categories that exist. It would be wonderful if we could say, and then there's this group in the middle. They're called neutral people. Um, wouldn't it be nice to be able to say that's where most of our friends reside? But the Bible doesn't give us that third option. James here is clear. Jesus is clear. There are two categories. And so in which one do I fall? If, if my faith is authentic, I will be a friend of God. If, if my faith is not authentic, I will see traits of this enemy of God. So uh, how do we identify those who are friends and those who are enemies of God? 
It's not as easy as you may think, um, and ultimately only God knows the heart of people, right? Aren't you glad you don't have to judge <laughs> these things? I know I am. But it's, it's not easy to, to identify because so many people have so many signs of friendship with God, like a measure of morality. I know a lot of people that are very moral people. I know a lot of people who are religious. I know a lot of people who know pretty a good amount of scripture. But do you remember how religious, moral, and knowledgeable the Pharisees were? Remember that group of people? Do they know scripture? Like the back of their hand. These people looked very spiritual. In fact, to the average guy in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the height of godliness. These, if anybody was a friend of God, it's the Pharisees would be the, the opinion of most in Jesus' day. Uh, I think most in those days would have been shocked to hear someone say, this group are enemies of God. Well, we might say, wait a minute. They, they look like friends of God. They're in the front row of the worship service every week, unlike people here. <laughs> Except for the Rogers family. Thank you very much. Appreciate you guys. No, these, these Pharisees were front row people. Uh, they knew the scriptures. They were active in the community. They served. They gave. They looked like friends of God. They're a lot like the contemporary enemies of God who fit nicely into American churches. And so you can see why it's difficult to ID enemies of God. This is the eighth test here in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, of uh, authentic faith. And it's an important one. Uh, and of course, I've said that on every one, right, haven't I? I've got to stop doing that. But they're all important, but this one's important because I'm talking about it today. All right? J James would say that the enemies of God are those who are in love with this world. They, they love what the world is selling. They believe and embrace the worldly system that essentially promotes self. And if you promote self, you have to oppose everything else that has authority, right? You, you cannot promote self and submit yourself at the same time. And so naturally, those who are um, engulfed in the worldly system, those who are friends of the world, oppose God because he is the ultimate authority. They may not come out and say those kind of words, but they actually embrace them. Last week I tried to show you that friendship with either God or the world is revealed by our affections, uh, by, by what we uh, are friendly with. We, we saw that there in verse 4. He, he, he describes the friendship with the world versus friendship with God. And so he says if you're a friend with the world, you're affectionate towards the things of the world. That's what the word friend means in the original language. And so these, these friends of the world are, are revealed by their affections for the world. They're revealed by what they have in common with the world. So let me ask you a real simple question. If you're examining your faith this morning, where do your affections lie? More with the world or more with God? Where do you find more in common with the world or with, with God, the things of God? So today I want to dive more deeply into this idea of friendship with the world. I, I want to show you the dangerous effects of being friends with the world. And then I want to end our time together this morning with some remarkable truth about the love of God for us. So follow as I read the first six verses, would you? 
James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's those two categories. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So let's look at the effect that friendship with the world has on us, all right? The effects of friendship on the world, I'm going to argue, are dangerous and drastic and actually infect three important areas of our life. And they all, all result in ruined relationships. If we are friends with the world, it will negatively affect our relationship with each other. It will affect, negatively affect our relationship with ourself and negatively affect our relationship with God. So let's walk through those things one by one. First, I need you to notice that this evidently happens even in churches. Can you believe that? People in churches don't get along. It's hard to believe. What's wrong with those churches? I mean, why can't they be like us, right? (laughs) All kidding aside, let's talk about what verse 1 means. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's asking, why are you fighting? Why are you quarreling? What's, What's all the battling about? What's this question imply? It means that battles are existent, even in the church. These things are happening amongst us in good churches. Remember James, who he's writing to? He's writing to a group of people who are claiming to be Christians. And he's asking them this question. This question, the Holy Spirit is asking us the same question. When when you have someone who's playing church and is motivated by selfish ambition, you're inevitably going to have what? Strife, right? You you can't avoid it. Um, This is, I think, obvious. Now, this is not, of course, the will of God uh, for individuals or for churches. Every New Testament writer goes to great lengths to communicate clearly and reinforce the importance of peace in churches, peace in relationships, love amongst the brothers. So God's will is that that we love one another, that we cooperate with each other, that we submit to one another in love, that we prefer one another. That is the opposite of what James is identifying here, which is battling, warring, quarreling, arguing, fighting. And it seems like the ideas that James brings up here in these first few verses is an echo of what we read back in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Look back there real quick with me, if you would. I want to make a point. Look at what James says about those who are friends with the world, those who have worldly wisdom, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false about the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Again, two categories, heavenly, earthly. Um, four, verse 
16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So as we're considering the dysfunction that James is describing here in verses 1 and 2, where does it come from? Do you see that? Can it come from those who embrace uh, the wisdom from above? Well, what's, what's wisdom above identified by or marked with? It says in verse 17 of chapter 3, that wisdom from above, those who are friends of God, are peaceable, gentle, and merciful. Is that, you know, logically a source of bitterness, strife, and so forth? Argument? No. It comes from those who are practicing every vile practice. Those who are chaotic and in disorder. This is what James is saying. He's already mentioned it in chapter 3. He brings it back up here and details it in chapter 4. The root cause of all our relationship conflict is self. Those who are consumed with self, those who are friends with the world, those who promote self over everybody else. And of course, this is based on pride. If you're a friend of the world, you possess earthly wisdom um, and one of the primary marks of earthly wisdom, as I just read from you from verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3, is selfishness. Selfishness. And if selfishness is the central character trait of the enemies of God, then it shouldn't surprise us to see quarrels and fighting. Right? Yeah. So whenever you get two selfish, prideful people in a room, what happens? Take your children, for example. That was supposed to be funny. I guess it didn't work. <laughs> Take your children, for example. When you get two, thank you. When you get two selfish people in a room, what happens? Whose toy is it? Uh, and of course, it goes beyond childhood, doesn't it? Yeah, this seems to stick with us throughout adulthood. When you have two individuals living together, whether it be in marriage or as siblings, and their goal is to satisfy self and refusal to humble themselves by serving the other, there is going to be conflict. There's going to be quarrels. There's going to be wars, as James describes it. So the effect of friendship with the world on our relationships is pretty dramatic. If we, if we, have, if we are a friend of the world, if we embrace worldly wisdom, it will negatively impact our relationships with one another because it's based, that is all based on selfishness. That's the foundation it also impacts our relationship with ourself. Look at verses, the second half of verse 1 through 3. It says, <clears throat> is it not this? Where's the fighting come from? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You, do not, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on yourself or on your passions. So where does James say our quarrels and fighting come from? It says from within each of us, inside of us. He said that they begin within each and every person. So the reason that there's turmoil in our relationships with one another is because there's turmoil in our own hearts. Passions that war within you, he said at the end of verse 1. So how do you ruin a relationship with yourself? And I'm not suggesting that the enemies of God are schizophrenic or anything like that. I'm just saying everyone has a relationship with himself. 
everyone. How healthy is that relationship? How healthy is your relationship with yourself? Let's think a little more deeply about it. Where do you get your self-worth? What is your identity? Those are the kind of things that cause inner turmoil. The friend of the world is in constant turmoil to have, to get more, to dominate, to promote self. It all seems quite natural when we're of the world. We're told from day one that if we don't look out for yourself, no one will. If you don't guard your own toys, someone will come take it. Right? We learn that at a very young age. When this is done in the context of relationships with one another, like, say, a spouse, the results are devastating, aren't they? They are. But the interesting thing is James is saying, we don't need other people to get in trouble. You can get in trouble all by yourself. So you go into that room where the quarreling just ended, and you're there by yourself. Guess what? You're still there. And even by yourself, you can get into trouble. The, the passions are warring within yourself. It just, it just becomes evident when someone walks into the room. So we don't have to be too observant to recognize this inner turmoil in people. Look at all the money spent on plastic surgery, on psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, medications, self-help literature, all aimed at helping people deal with themselves. Look at the symptoms all around us. Drug addiction, alcohol abuse, destructive lifestyles, suicide. Caring for self in our culture is a multi-billion dollar industry, isn't it? It's crazy. It's obvious that people are not only quarreling with others in their lives, there's a major struggle going on inside. James identifies two causes for this internal struggle in people who are friends with the world. And the first is uncontrolled and perverted desire. You can see it there in verses two, or one and one, second half of verse one and two. In verse one, James plainly states, the reason we quarrel with others is because of the passions that are war within ourselves. And he uses the word passions in verse one. He uses that same word passions in verse two. I mean, in verse three. That word in the Greek is hedone. Does that sound familiar? Hedonism. Hedone. That's where we get our word hedonism. What's a hedonist? A hedonist is a pleasure seeker, right? Uh, to the, to the uh, neglect of everybody and everything around them, they're seeking their own pleasure. The Apostle Paul describes these kind of people in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Listen. For people will be lovers of self. This is, sounds so much like James' uh, concerns and terminology. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, check, 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 disobedient to their parents. How you like that, kids? What category are you in, youngsters who still live at home? Why did the Apostle Paul include that in this list? Then he goes on, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow. Where's you out just listening to the list, doesn't it? That's, that's Paul's definition of those who are friends with the world. And it's parallel to James's. 
The pursuit of pleasure, though, even though it has all these negative consequences, the pursuit of pleasure, hear me, isn't the problem. You're glad I said that, aren't you? Because we all have these desires and these interests, these impulses. Do you know that, that God created our impulses? God created our desires? And so the pursuit of pleasure isn't the problem. The problem is where we end up seeking it. Where we end up seeking to fulfill those pleasures, those desires. God invented pleasure and wants us to enjoy his inventions. Passions are designed by God to lead us to a specific place. But when we, in our friendship with the world, pervert God's intent, that's when we get into trouble. The worldly system in which we live is opposed to God and anything about him. So this system takes pleasure and it twists it so that it no longer resembles God's intention, God's invention, or his intended use. What I want you to see here in this point is that James's description of conflict with self is based on out-of-control and perverted desires. These desires, according to verse 2, can result in quarreling, fighting, murder, and these desires cause relationship dysfunction with others and actually also dramatically affect our own mental and spiritual health. These, these, these impulses and these desires twisted um, and perverted by the worldly system actually draw us away from the direction God wants us to go with them. Right? So, so the first cause of conflict within ourselves is an uncontrolled and perverted desire. Secondly, it's selfish desire. Look at the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, as you quickly look at the verses I just read, you can see that selfishness is exactly what James is describing. Verse 2 says they don't have because they don't ask. And what it doesn't say, I think, is just important. It, it doesn't say that they don't ask because they... they it, he's not just saying they don't ask. He's saying that they don't ask because they feel independent of God. And, and they feel self-sufficient. They're too prideful to acknowledge their need. So why go to God and ask for something? I want to be independent of him. Why would I go and ask? Then James says, interestingly, that when they do ask, they do it so they can satisfy themselves, fulfill their twisted passions. And I think this can be a bit confusing, but what I think he means here in verse 2 and 3 is that the friends of the worldly system don't generally ask God because they really don't want his feedback. But when they do get in a bind and they do ask, guess what the requests look like? Self-centered, completely. So they say things like this when they get in what they perceive to be a bind. Help me get the promotion at my place of work over my fellow worker. We're both up for the promotion. God, help me get it. Or, uh, God, help me, help me be, able to, be able to get a good deal on a nicer car than my neighbor. So what happens when your coworker gets the promotion or your neighbor drives up with a nicer car? Then what? Well, then we're back at the beginning. Bitterness, jealousy, hatred, inner turmoil, 
Uncontrolled, perverted, and selfish desires are the cause of personal dysfunction, and that always spills over into our relationships with one another. Now, keep in mind here what James is doing. He's presenting a test of authentic faith. Uh, so if you're in conflict with others, and maybe even conflict within your own soul, James wants you to consider whether or not your faith is authentic. How, how does your life reflect these two things? Are, are you a friend of God or a friend of the world? Are you in turmoil with people? Or are you in turmoil with yourself? Well, the effect of friendship um, with the world affects relationship with one another. It affects relationship with yourself. And finally, and most importantly, most seriously, is our relationship with God. Look at this, verse 4. I'm going to pull three things out of uh, the next few verses. But starting with verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, what I've identified here is hostility, the idea of hostility. Isn't that associated with enemies? With enemies comes hostility. That's why they're enemies. I want you to know, if you didn't already see it, this is very intense language for a reason. Because this is so significant in the life of every human being. This, this is something that we must come to grips with, that we must understand. We all know that the most damaging thing that can happen to a marriage is what? Adultery, right? Anytime that there's adultery in a marriage, it does untold damage to the trust and depth and the entire relationship of that marriage. So James comes out, because of the serious nature of this, he comes out and calls his readers spiritual adulterers. Now, follow the, the logic with me on this, if you would. God desires for his children to be in a loving and dependent relationship on him or with him. He, he wants to provide for us and have our joy and fulfillment found in him. But when we go find our ultimate fulfillment in anything other than God, it does not please him. When we ask God for selfish gifts... We are acknowledging that we don't think God is capable of actually fulfilling us. God, I appreciate Jesus and all that stuff, but would you mind getting me a new car? How about a raise at work? I know I'm supposed to be happy in you, but I think the car would probably do better at fulfilling me. That's exactly what's being said. We, we can understand the spiritually adultery in this way. If my wife came to me and asked if she could take $1,000 out of our savings account so she could fly to Vegas with her new boyfriend, how do you think that would go? <laughs> we would have problems, I think. I don't earn my paycheck so my wife can fly off to Vegas with her new friend. I want to be that person in her life. I want to be the one to fulfill her and bring her joy. I don't want her getting her joy and identity from something outside of our marriage. That's my job, my role. And so when she runs off with her new boyfriend, what does that say about my ability to fulfill her, to make her happy and joyful? She's saying, John, you can't cut it. I need this new boyfriend. So when we run off away from God, away from uh, God's plan, 
a friendship with him and say, I'd rather be friends with the world because it's more concrete. I can, I can see it, feel it, taste it, experience it. I need that car. I need that raise. I need this or that to be fulfilled. What are we saying? Um, James is saying that's, that attitude is a hostile attitude towards God. It makes us enemies of God. So if you place things over God, it makes you friends of the world. I hope that's clear to you. Secondly, in verse 5, I want you to see neglect. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is a very difficult verse to understand. Translators and commentators uh, stumble over this verse a lot and there's a wide variety of meanings that they produce. And part of the reason for that uh, difficulty is is uh, whether or not the S in spirit should be capital or lowercase in verse 5. In the NIV, they've made it lowercase. And if you capitalize that S, it changes the intent of the verse. And so there's a lot of disagreement, and no one is being dogmatic about it because in the original language, there were no capital letters. It was just lowercase all the way along. And so since James isn't clear enough in the context here what he means, people have been guessing since it was written what this really meant. But let, let me say this. If it is lowercase s, meaning the human spirit in view in verse 5, um, then, then we could interpret this verse to mean that God is concerned with our natural tendency to neglect him and his word. And I think this would fit well within the context of friendship with the world. If our relationship with God is ruined because of our friendship with the world and then hostility towards God and neglect of God and neglect of his word would be what we would expect. And God doesn't want that. We also can see here as we're working through this uh, problem, how, how the friendship with the world causes problems with God, we've seen their hostility, neglect. And now look at verse 6 and I want to show you how pride also is involved. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We're all familiar with that verse. We know that God is a God of grace to those who are friends of God, right? Those who embrace Jesus Christ. We know God is a God of full and overflowing grace. Uh, but to those who are trapped in the worldly system, pride is the dominant character quality and I think one of the biggest impediments to the gospel of grace penetrating the soul. Pride blocks our ability to see our need, whether we're talking about spiritual things or secular things, right? Sometimes we're too proud to acknowledge a need and so we just can't get our lawn mowed. It's that simple. And when it comes to the gospel, if we're unwilling to acknowledge our need for forgiveness and grace and mercy, then guess what? We don't receive it. It's blessed are the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God, Jesus said. Pride is opposed to this attitude. Humility is a requirement to experience God's grace. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you a gospel perspective to close our time together. Uh, I want to back up 
to how the worldly system or friendship with the world causes problems for us in our relationship with God. And I want to walk through those three points I made with you again. And I'm going to ask you if you've been taking notes to get ready to cross out some of the answers you wrote in there. All right. And this was intentional. Okay. I just didn't come up with this this morning. So work with me. Um, we, we know that a ruined relationship with God is the norm in this worldly system. Many people live with no relationship with God. They may not feel hostile towards God at all, but because of their association with the world and the affections they have towards the world and getting their identity from the world and their joy from the world, they cannot be friends with God. They must be friends of the world. So let's look back at how James describes the ruined relationship with God. First of all, I ask you to write down hostility. Do you have that in your notes? Well, I want you to ask a question, if you're taking notes, from whence the hostility? Where's that hostility coming from? From God or from us? Look at verse 4. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes. The word wishes there is not just a passive, winsome, you know, passing thought. It's way stronger that, than that in James's usage. It means to be actively choosing something over another. These people here in verse 4 are actively choosing to be friends with the world versus God. Notice what it says. They wish, they wish to be a friend of the world, making themselves an enemy of God. They're making themselves hostile to God. It is not God's intent to um, push hostility in our direction. The hostility that James is speaking of is coming from the individual. Coming from the person who is friends with the world. The, the world has a much stronger attraction to this person than God does. This isn't just a, a neutral person, passive person, not having a thought. No, they have actively and consciously chosen one over the other. This means that hostility is not from God, but from them. And the friends of the world prefer it that way. Secondly, I ask you to write down the word neglect right? From verse 5. As I said, this verse is difficult, and so we're not going to be dogmatic about the interpretation. But if we do use a capital S for the word spirit there, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, not to the human spirit. If we do that, we get a different and more gracious slant on this verse. It would then mean that God is jealous that we not be tricked by the world. God is jealous for your affections. God wants you to be in tune with him. He wants your friendship. It would be like God wooing those who've been duped by the world, declaring his love and interest in them. And then finally, I asked you to write down pride as it describes verse 6. And what I'm about to say I think is the climax of this text and uh, hopefully of this sermon the idea of grace here, I believe, is both saving grace for those who are caught in the uh, sticky web of the worldly system and renewing grace 
for the wayward believer who has drifted in that direction. So I think two ideas of grace are in view here. Grace for those who have never experienced it and grace for those of us who need more of it to stay out of the world's grasp. That includes all of us. There is more grace, he says, in the first clause of verse 6. Interestingly, back up in verse 2, there's a hint of this. He hints that this is coming. There's a, there is hope for the self-obsessed person up in verse 2. James makes it clear that, that those people up in verse 2 are not content. They're in fights. They're arguing. They're always battling, trying to get their way. And they'll do anything to fulfill those desires, usually at the expense of relationships. But at the end of verse 2, he says that all of our deepest desires are unmet. Why? Why are desires of worldly people unmet, according to verse 2? They don't ask. <laughs> That's how simple is that? The reason you don't have is because you don't ask. Jesus said the same thing. So let's think about this. What are our deepest desires? And I mean are as in the human race. It's, it's the same, isn't it? We all want the same things. We all want meaningful life. We all want happiness, joy, peace, contentment, love. Every human being wants that. All of our earthly pursuits are about finding those things. That's the passions I was talking about earlier. The desire to have love, joy, peace, you know, fulfillment, meaning, purpose, those are God-given desires. He wants you to experience those things more than you want to experience them. So the problem is that when we are infected by the worldly system, we, we choose the wrong way about it. We, we, we're, we're on the wrong path, barking up the wrong tree. We, we demonstrate a, a perverted, out-of-control desire, and it ends up ruining relationships around us. But if you knew the source of all those good things, what is that source? Who is that source? Isn't it God in Christ? Yes, that's what Scripture would say. But if we knew that the source of all those things was God in Christ and that he actually desires to have those things experienced by us more than we do, it would change everything. We, we think in our uh, earthly wisdom, in our friendship with the world, that, that those things that we desire are within our reach if we'll just exert a little more of our will, put a little more pressure on our boss or on our neighbor or on our spouse to get them to do our selfish desire. Or try a little harder at work to put in some longer hours, get the latest toy, have the right you know, spouse, the right dollar amount in your bank account. Friends, those things are a lie from the world that are not the truth. God would have us believe his promises and humbly acknowledge our lack and continue to pursue all those God-given desires, but to find those things in him. Listen to these wonderful verses from Psalms. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God-given desires, he will fulfill them if you delight in the Lord Jesus. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy, as we have learned, is the man who takes refuge in him. 
Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You see, see, God wants us to have the very things that we want to have. He just wants us to find them in him. In his world. Not in the worldly system. So the focus of verse 6, but he gives more grace Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The focus of verse 6 is grace, not God's opposition to prideful people. An artist once submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for an exhibition, but neglected to title their, their painting. And so the gallery had to have a title for this uh, exhibition. And so the, the gallery itself supplied the name for this painting of Niagara Falls. And they decided on this name, More to Follow. So Niagara Falls, spilling billions and billions of gallons per year for thousands of years, always has more to follow. There is always a sufficient amount of water going over the falls. It's been that way for millennia. The people below who've needed the water supply always get a sufficient amount. It is a lot like God's grace. There's more to follow. More to come. There's always more. This is what the Apostle John said about Jesus in, first, in John chapter 1, verse 16. From his fullness, that is from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You know what that term grace upon grace means? An extreme amount of grace. Grace heaped upon grace. That's what John meant. So he would say, along with James... There is more grace available for all of our personal weaknesses. You got a few personal weaknesses? There is more than enough grace. There's more grace to follow. There's more grace for any insurmountable obstacle that you may be facing. Terminal illness, a death in the family, a crushing divorce, failure upon failure. There's always more grace. There's more grace for the impossible tasks that we face like to get up early and go to work with a smile on our face. Like the strength to go to school and face pressure to fit in to a place that Christians can't fit in. Strength to get up and feed your family and nurture your children when you're dead tired. He gives more grace. He gives more grace continually, more and more, heaped upon heaped. After any negative experience, humility, humiliating defeat, difficult marriage, there is always more grace. Do you find yourself in need of God's grace, God's strength? As the late songwriter Annie Johnson Flint uh, wrote in her wonderful song, and by the way, she knew a little bit about suffering and ex the experience of necessary daily grace. Uh, for the last half of her life, she spent in a wheelchair because of arthritis but this is what Annie Johnson Flint wrote. And some of you will recognize this song, at least those of you who are my age or older. Uh, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To multiplied afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, 
When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. And this is the chorus. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Friend, is that your experience with Christ? Are, are you a friend of God? Friends of God experience this kind of thing. We live on this kind of thing. This is our breath, right? The grace of God. Pray with me. Father, what a wonderful thought of the abundance of your grace that's offered to anybody who will but humble themselves and ask. Father, destroy our pride. Get past our pride in whatever means necessary. Cause us to come humbly to the fountain of grace in Jesus Christ. God, draw us by your mercy. Even though many of us don't actually recognize our desperate need of your grace, I pray that somehow in your goodness you would pour it onto us anyways. We believe with the Apostle John that in Christ Jesus there is abundant grace, grace upon grace. Father, for many in this room who have, who have experienced the grace of Christ Jesus, we ask that you would give us more grace so that we might walk even more faithfully as a friend of God in this dark world who's opposed to you and to any who follow you. Give us more grace, Father. For those in this room who have never experienced the grace of God firsthand, I lift them up now to you, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work of transformation, that you would... Uh, clearly reveal the love of Christ, the, the path to grace and mercy through his sacrifice on Calvary. I pray that they would understand the gospel and embrace Jesus Christ personally, turn from their sin, turn from their friendship with the world, and embrace the most beautiful friendship available in Christ Jesus. Father, make that so. Do this here amongst us. Help us to be a church full of people who live by grace people who share that grace and will praise you now and throughout eternity. Amen.